I am so excited about this series. Thank you, team. Look at the setup, team. How brilliant. You guys are probably very confused about what I'm about to preach on, but I'll keep you hanging for a little while. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Shemaine. I would love to meet you after the service, um, but I'm really, really excited about preaching uh, this second part in a 10-part series. If you were here um, last week uh, for Darcy's message, you would have seen that we're doing things a little bit different. We've flipped it backwards, right? So she started last week with Do Not Covet, uh, which is all about jealousy. Um, and that is the only one that actually addresses a thought. Uh, and so I'm kicking off today with number nine, which is Do Not Give False Testimony Against Your Neighbor probably still confused about that. Um, the first four things, uh, first four commandments here are actually, they all pertain to how we have a healthy relationship with God, right? And then the following six are all about how we build healthy relationships with people. And so I find that super intriguing when you think about the fact that at the time, God gave these to the Israelites when, they, when their lives looked like a bit of chaos. They had just come out of slavery, uh, and so they had no real boundaries. They didn't quite know structure of society and things like that. And this is actually what our justice system today is built so strongly upon. So it's really awesome that we get to dig into these things. But would you guys join me in prayer really quickly just before we kick it off? Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place. We thank you, God, that, uh, yeah, that you've given us these commandments um, and that they are things that we can use to love God and love people so well. Uh, and we just really pray, God, that you would open our eyes, uh, open our ears, open our hearts to you this morning as we hear this message and receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are we awake this morning? How good. How good. I am definitely awake. I'm running on adrenaline. Um, <laughs> the one that I'm focusing on today, it's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, and it is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, this is quite different to what I grew up understanding about this one. It tends to get watered down a little bit to do not lie right? Do not lie is what it's often taught as, but it's actually a lot more serious than simply do not lie. The wording of it is do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, false testimony is this. It is an intentional effort to lie about another person in an attempt to tarnish their reputation or their relationships, right? I'll read that one more time. It's an intentional effort to lie about another person and attempt to tarnish their relationships or their reputation. Now, somehow, 12-year-old uh, Shemaine really understood this concept a little bit too well. Uh, and if any of you guys have siblings, you will very much be able to um, relate to the bratty young teenager that I was, right? When I was intermediate Shemaine, I remember it all too well. Uh, my father was leaving the house and he was going to work and he said to me, hey, Sherm, can you make sure that you hang out the washing, right? I was like, got it, no worries. He leaves, my brother's on the couch, unsuspecting, unsuspecting victim right here on the couch, not knowing that Hurricane Shemaine is about to hit. So he comes, no, no, he stays on the couch. I come over to him and I'm like, hey, uh, Daryl, you... Um, you know that dad asked you to hang out the clothes, right? I was like, you need to go do that now. Uh, 12 year old, he's probably in his last year of high school at this point, he's like six foot something at that point. And he was like, um, no. 
I heard dad say that to you. And I was like, no, he said to me that you needed to do it. We went back and forth probably five different times. And I was like, no, no, no. He said you. He didn't say me. He said you. And so we were arguing and arguing. And I said, you know what? I'm sick of this. I was like, if you're not going to do it, I bet you I can make you. (laughs) Who did I think I was? And he was like, I would like to see you try, right? So he's lying on this couch, not not a single worry in his mind. I just walk over, walk over to, not to him, to the opposite side of the house where I know my mother is, open the door, and I'm like, ow! Classic drama queen. Daryl, stop punching me! And he immediately sits up, and he's like, what are you, what are you doing? And I was like, you're hitting me for nothing! Mom! And then my mom, right? She starts yelling. She can't even see him. He's still lying on the couch. She can't even see him. And she, she starts yelling from the other side of the house. Why are you hitting your sister? And my brother was like, this is your fault. And I was like, I told you so. And so anyways, I start acting it up. And so my mom runs to me. She embraces me. Never mind the fact that he is still on the couch. Absolutely. Like nowhere even near me. He's still on the couch. And I'm like being consoled, sulking into my mother's arms. Uh, and she, at this point, she's like, where did he hit you? And I was like, here and, and here and also um, here. And so I'm just making it up as, as you go. And she's like, how many times did he hurt you? I was like, I don't know. I just lost count. When did he start hitting you? I was like, like I don't know. It was like when, he, when dad left. And so I was making it up as it went. And she was like, why is he hitting you? I was like, it's, it's because he didn't want to hang out the washing. So my mom is absolutely livid at this point. And meanwhile, it's like a movie scene. I'm like crying into my mom's shoulder and just point blank staring at my brother like poker face. And I'm like, this is your fault. Uh, And so then he just looks at me and he's like, you little. And then so he had to go and do that. So uh, rest assured, I did not. I did not have to hang out the washing that day. Um, But one thing that I did learn about giving false testimony through this little experience is that when you start a lie, you actually have to follow it up and follow it up with another lie and another lie and another lie, right? When it becomes a false testimony, it's not just a matter of, oh, it's a one-off thing. It's actually intentional and you end up having to lie to cover your own, you know, uh, face here. Um, And so (laughs) the common pattern there reminds me of the phrase, a web of lies, right? You don't just perch on a web, right? Uh, On a spider web, things don't just perch on it. They get stuck, right? And they can't actually escape. um, And there is no end to that, right? But with the lies, you have to tell another lie and another lie and another lie until the truth can set you free. Until the truth can set you free. With this nine commandment here, what it shows us is that God places immense value on our honesty. At the time of Moses, when these laws were established by God, the Israelite people had still had the mindset of bondage that they adopted in Egypt, right? They were enslaved for 400 years prior. So generation upon generation, all they knew was slavery. So now to go from absolute bondage to radical freedom is not an easy thing to make, right? So they had no concept of who they were. They had no concept of boundaries at the time. uh, And so they were just living a lifestyle that they were quite confused about. And God was now setting up his covenant to establish 
something from the chaos, right? What he wanted to establish was a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he referred to them as. Through them, he would then be glorified across the earth. But how can God, who is perfect, be glorified through people who lie? That's what was really challenging about this. And you may be wondering, what exactly is a false testimony? What exactly did they explain that as? Um, And it meant this. So we see Moses explaining it a few chapters later in Exodus 23. And you can follow along with me in your notes, um, or it's coming up on the screen. If you can see the screen. (laughs) Uh, He says this, You must not pass along false rumors, You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand, right? Seems pretty simple, but they actually needed to be taught this stuff. You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, you must not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. Do not slant your testimony in favor favor of a person just because they are poor, was the example that he gave. Throughout the book of Genesis, we see many examples of what these false testimonies could actually uh, be in, in action. And I noticed that there was a pattern among all of them. The pattern was this, that giving false testimony is deliberate, it is divisive, and it is destructive. I'll say that one more time for you. Giving false testimony, the process is deliberate, It is divisive, it divides people, and it is destructive. It will always lead to destruction of something. I want to walk you through three different uh, stories that we see in the book of Genesis, and you can have a guess as to what you think they may be by these little items behind me. Um, The first one, uh, they actually all revolve around the same family. It's the family of Jacob, right? And just context-wise, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, and Abraham is who uh, God set up his covenant promise and gave that to. He said that through you... um, your descendants will be immeasurable, so more than the stars in the sky that you can count, right? And so in that sense, we're now dealing with his grandson, okay? And through his line comes Jesus eventually. So here uh, in the first one, which is on the left-hand side over here, we can see uh, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca. They gave false testimony against their brother, against his brother Esau, so right? It's Jacob and Esau's story. So here, Jacob is the more quiet one. It says uh, in Scripture that he spent his time indoors, and so he ended up being Rebecca's favorite, the mother's favorite, Uh, whereas Esau was the rough and tumble. It it explains him as a burly, hairy man uh, who hunted game out in the field. And so in that sense, he was his father Isaac's favorite. So Esau was the dad's favorite, and Jacob was the mother's favorite, and this divided them a little bit. Their father Isaac at this point was about to pass away, and so his vision uh, was giving way. It was quickly deteriorating. So before he died, he said to Esau, would you go and hunt game for me to make my favorite meal and bring that back so that I can bless you? He was about to impart his final blessing upon the lineage of his firstborn. So that belonged to Esau. 
What had happened here was that Rebecca, the mother, at that point she was eavesdropping, and she obviously wanted her favorite son, Jacob, to get that blessing. Never mind the fact that prior to this, Jacob had also stolen his birthright. He had, he had exchanged the birthright for a bowl of soup, if you know that story. So that had already taken place, and he had convinced him out of his birthright. Now separately, he is going to steal his blessing from the father. So her elaborate plan is this. Rebecca says, I will cook his favorite meal. You go and hunt it. Uh, And then he takes advantage. They both take advantage of the dad's vision impairment. And she says, you go and clothe yourself in Esau's clothing so that you can smell like him. Uh, And then approach Jacob. It says also to wrap fur around you so that he can think that you are hairy when he touches you. Right? So they're tricking... uh, the dad into thinking that he is Esau. He then has to follow through with the lie. So then in this one conversation with his dad, he goes to him, says, it is I, Esau, and then lies to his dad point blank six times, six times in that same conversation in order to cover it up and steal this blessing. This whole process was deliberate. It was incredibly planned. It was divisive, it forced them to lie, and it ruined relationships, but it was also destructive mainly to the two brothers. So their relationship was completely ruined because of this stolen blessing, and they didn't talk for years and years to come. The second one in the middle here that I want to touch base on really quickly is Jacob's son, Judah. So this is the same Jacob, and years later we see that he has 12 sons, right? Uh, And you will know the story of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat probably. Joseph was one of those 12 sons, and Judah was the son that sold him into slavery. So what happens here is that they all give false testimony against Joseph to the dad. So later on the path, uh, he has 12 sons, um, and they are all known as being quite reckless ones, right? Except for Joseph. Joseph is his favorite son, and he had no reservations about making that known. Joseph always did the right thing, uh, and he also always reported on the brothers when they did the wrong thing. So he was a bit of a tattletale, and this really annoyed Uh, all of his brothers, to the point where they actually openly hated him. So they already hated him at that point. But then Joseph (laughs) goes and uh, shares about them, uh, shares about a dream that he has. So Joseph has the gift of interpreting dreams. He then has this dream that he goes out and excitedly shares with all of his brothers that hate him. Uh, And he says, uh, my dream was this, and it represents the fact that you will all one day bow down to me. It's like one of, those, one of those situations of like, you know, wrong time, wrong people maybe. Um, but he goes and shares this with all of his brothers who already hate him. So they see this and they're like, who does this little punk think he is? We are going to kill him. So they actually plot at this point to kill him. That makes them hate him even more. That's how wicked this family was. And very long story short, instead of killing Joseph, what happens uh, is that one day they... Uh, stripped him of his robe when they went out of town. They threw him into a pit, uh, and then they ended up selling him to traveling merchants as they passed through the town on their way to Egypt. So he just knew that he was going to go and become a slave, eventually die. They would never have to see him again and not worry about it. So they thought, you know what, let's at least get some money out of this trade. So they did that, said goodbye to their brother, and never thought they'd see him again. The false witness part comes in here when they go ahead and take his robe and they dip it in blood. 
right? So they killed an animal, slaughtered it, and dipped it in blood to then return this robe of the favorite son back to Jacob. They returned it to him, and obviously it broke his heart, and he assumed that his son had been ripped to shreds by wild animals. What then blows my mind is the fact that all 11 brothers go along with it. All 11 of them, even though not necessarily all of them agreed with the plan to get rid of him, uh, they actually all went along with it and created a false testimony against the fact that he was killed, right? So that was destructive, it was divisive, and it was absolutely deliberate. The last thing over here that I want to go through is the story of Joseph. So after he then travels all the way to Egypt with these merchants, he gets sold into, um, not slavery, but he gets sold into uh, the uh, Potiphar's house, right? So he's the captain of the guards, and he becomes a servant for him. Due to his hard work under Potiphar's rule and his... um, honest dealings, Joseph actually found favor in Potiphar's eyes. Um, But then eventually, Potiphar's wife comes on the scene. Potiphar's wife uh, is very much, she gets to see the blessing that follows Joseph everywhere he goes. And when Joseph then is um, moved up the ranks to then be in charge of all of Potiphar's things, she goes, hmm, he looks pretty fine. Hmm, everything he touches turns to gold. Uh, And so then she kind of comes through. She gets in his way on purpose, and she tries to then seduce him. So she does this multiple times. It says that she talked to him on the daily, uh, and he ended up getting to the point where he actually actively avoided her. He avoided her like the plague because he knew that that was a temptation. He wasn't willing to be a crutch in his life. So what did Potiphar's wife do? She calculated the perfect time, she was deliberate, uh, to be alone with him in this house without any servants in sight. When Joseph had ran from her, she then planned to tear a part of his garment, right? She then started screaming at the top of her lungs as soon as he left her uh, because she didn't get her way. She teared a part of his garment, started screaming and created a false testimony that he tried to sexually assault me. Right? So then obviously, who do they believe? Potiphar's wife. So then Joseph eventually gets thrown in jail. But we see here with this false testimony, it was deliberate, it was divisive, and it was absolutely destructive, not just to his relationships, but actually his job and status as well. What I love about Joseph's story, though, is that this actually teaches us how we can handle uh, sin when we're tempted, right? When we're faced with temptation to sin, it gives us a template of what to do. What Joseph did is that he clung to the truth and he acted in integrity. He ran from her as far as he could on every occasion. And what did God do when he sees this kind of action? Regardless of where Joseph went, God commanded his blessing. He commanded his blessing on Joseph when he was at home. He was the favorite child because he did things right. He then commanded his blessing when he was sold into slavery and went into Potiphar's house. He was promoted to the top of the ranks. He then was thrown into prison where God commanded his blessing in prison and he was put in charge of all the prisoners eventually. And then uh, from prison, he interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh Uh, And then he was eventually placed in charge of all of Egypt. And so his dream actually came true where his brothers had to bow before him. His strategy here, Joseph's strategy, could be simply summed up uh, in the one verse in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6. And it says this, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with 
the truth. This is what God is trying to show us that he values through this ninth commandment, the truth. I think it's really easy, however, to look at these stories and kind of go, oh, okay, but like that's the Old Testament though, you know, like we don't really sell our siblings into slavery anymore, I would hope. Uh, or we, you know, like we don't, we don't like beat people up and chuck them in pits or we don't like, you know, sell birthrights anymore or that sort of thing, steal people's inheritances. Um, but actually, if you were here for Darcy's message last week, you will realize that it starts as a thought pattern before it becomes an action. It starts as a discontent thought before that then gives birth to an action. And it's a slippery slope from there. So here are some ideas of how this could kind of trickle down into our relationships today. It could simply be false testimony against someone if we are blaming someone for something that we know we did, right? That is a, a smaller watered down act of giving false testimony. If we did something wrong and then blame it on someone else, even if it's just to protect our pride and not a big deal, uh, actually, actually, that is, that is a small seed of false testimony. Um, it is going along with gossip because we don't want to kill the conversation, you know, you don't want to be that person. So you know that things are being gossiped about, but you're not willing to insert the truth there or stop the conversation. Um, it could be slandering someone, someone's name, um, because, which is like spreading rumors about them, um, because they're not present to defend themselves. It's a lot easier then to talk about somebody when they're not in the room uh, because they can't actually give their side of the story. So it's easy to do that, right? And we fall into it too often. In your workplace, perhaps, it could look like uh, stepping on other people in order to climb the ladder, right? Um, it may be giving a bad reference to a good person, because you don't want them to get the job that you want. Or it could be vice versa, maybe giving a good reference to a bad person because you just want to be nice. But actually, that's not truthful, right? Um, or even just simply going along with the office joke, you know, because it's a joke and it's funny, but actually it's not truthful. And so that actually gets to plant a seed of the same thing. Um, if you've been following along, like I have, on the, uh, the recent defamation trial with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, um, you'll know full well, <laughs> uh, full well that bearing false witness is well and truly alive and kicking, right? It's been ongoing. Has anyone else been watching it? It's over now, but I love that all the teenagers are like, <laughs> they make all the jokes in class. Um, but actually, it is, it is incredibly alive and kicking in the sense that we make a false witness against someone so easily and then get stuck in a web of lies, right? Uh, and the truth is only what can set you free. I kind of feel like from all of the uh, different trials that I've watched now, I'm like, I've, I've pretty much got a law degree, you know? Like, objection, hearsay, and then they're like, objection, hearsay, and I'm like, called it. Uh, objection, lack of foundation. <laughs> Sorry, sir, can we approach the bench? Um, <laughs> and so I uh, have definitely been a qualified lawyer now. Um, but in a world where temptation to lie is all around us, we actually need to ask ourselves this one question. How do we make a commitment to live by the truth? How do we make a commitment to live by the truth? And I think Micah 6 verse 8 gives us a really clear template uh, for how to do this. It says this, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so these are just the three points that I'd like to hammer in uh, before I close, is that we live by the truth when we are a people who act justly. 
Obviously, that's to do with justice. And God is a just God. All through Scripture, it talks about justice, 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 right? Doing the right thing. And God cannot act outside of his character, um, but he also is a gracious God. And so it's incredible to actually dig into what justice means for him. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, it shows us what acting justly can actually look like in a practical way. It says this, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. I'm going to let you just focus on one of those things. You can see it at the top there. Fabulous. Focus on one of those things quickly. I'm going to give you a second to read that because it's actually really important that we look at it and go, oh, I actually could do more of that in my world. I'll give you a second to do that. Even something as simple as learn to do right, hey? Sometimes that's really hard. But that's an incredible template of how it could look practically for us. The second thing here to uh, remind us of is that we live by the truth when we are a people who love mercy. A people who love mercy. The best way that I've had this concept of mercy and grace and the difference between the two uh, explained to me is through this quote. And I'm going to read it twice because it is brilliant. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, but mercy is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, but mercy is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. In Lamentations chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, it says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, my understanding of someone who loves mercy is somebody who actually has had a revelation of what this means to them, of what God's mercy extended to us looks like and is able to then extend that mercy to other people around them. And the final thing here is that we live by truth when, people, when we are a people who walk humbly with our God. You see, humility is like one of those words that like sounds really nice on paper and you're like, yeah, I'm humble. Um, But actually, it's really painful to learn in terms of a life lesson. It's really painful to be uh, humbled. Um, But actually, when it's God that is humbling you, it's not painful at all. It's actually a really loving thing. And so the process might be uncomfortable because we're stretching and growing, but actually it never leaves you exhausted. And so in that sense, uh, it says here in Psalm 15, it asks this question, and Keys, you can join me now. Uh, It asks this question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Essentially, it's saying, who can approach you, God? And it says this, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, the one who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, 
who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and who does not change their mind, one who lends money to the poor without charging interest, one who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. How powerful is that? That those are the characteristics that God values. And out of all 11 of them that Psalm 15 outlines, four of them directly address our ability to tell the truth, our ability to be honest and to be a good witness.